Welcome everyone and thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Michael Frad. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Tricia and very happy to have everyone back for our third course in our or third session in our course Quandaries of Quarantine in Biblical Talmudic and Hasidic Literature with Rabinit Leah Sarna. Rabinit Sarna is the Associate Director of Education and the Director of High School Programs at Trisha. She has previously served as a Director of Religious Engagement at Anshay Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation in Chicago and was ordained at Yeshivat Maharat in 2018. Uh, we have been working our way through this course as part of our spring session on perspectives on quarantine. We have eight courses that are running between Pesach and Shavuot, dealing with different perspectives on uh, plague, quarantine, uh, and, and disease, kind of various ways that, that Jews have approached these topics throughout history. And this course in particular, we have been thinking about the many forms of solitude takes in Jewish tradition. We have discussed Miriam and Aaron and the high priest as biblical models for solitude. We have discussed in Yoma last week, the different models that we had for the high priest quarantining, including whether or not it's based on the, uh, the priestly consecration ceremony in Shemot and Fayikra, whether or not it's based on Moshe before Mamad Harsinai. Uh, tonight we're going to be delving a little bit more into the Gemara, and I'm going to share a source sheet in the chat in just a minute, and I will also put a copy of it uh, on our Facebook Live page so that people can follow along there. But we're really excited to be uh, coming back for the, the third of four sessions for this really, really wonderful class. A uh, couple of quick notes. We will have a few points where we pause for discussion, but in the meantime, please feel free to use the chat for questions and comments. If you're on Facebook Live, please feel free to put your comments and questions in there and we'll make sure to relay them to Rabinit Sarna. Uh, we always appreciate it if folks are able to keep their video on. Uh, we love being able to look around and see who's in the room. Of course, if, if that doesn't work for you, we totally understand. Uh, we also do appreciate if folks are able to be sure to keep themselves on mute to avoid any background noise or distractions. Uh, if any tech questions come up, any behind the scenes issues, please feel free to send me a chat and I will be happy to help. And with that, I think we can go ahead and get started with our learning. Um, hi everyone, welcome back. So, um, Michael, you actually don't get graded on this. So you don't have to remember every single thing we learned. <laughs> but that was a very impressive recap of where we've been so far. Um, and the other two, two reasons, in addition to what um, Michael pointed out, were um, that we also looked at Elijah on Mount Carmel and will we'll be, I'm oh, sorry, at Horev, right, following Har Carmel. Um, Elijah at Horev, where he encounters a small, still voice, but he, you know, walks for 40 days in the wilderness to get there. And, um, and, and, and similarly is kind of fasting the way that uh, Moses fasts at Sinai and, and his recreation. And then, um, and then we also looked at um, Rishon Baruchai and his son in the cave. Um, and some of their difficulties, both in the cave and then getting out of the cave. Um, but we're going to zoom in this time a little bit on that Arishua Baruchai in the cave thing, which it, but let's imagine that he's actually not there with his son. So that's what we're talking about today is like the singular rabbi all by themselves in quarantine. Um, 
and this, the, the Talmud actually has, and, and we may have actually like approach our source sheet a little bit out of order. Um, I had it, when I, when I send out the source sheet, I had like a certain order in mind and, and now I'm thinking that we might do it a little bit in a different order, which is that the Talmud has some, some not so nice things to say about rabbis who learn Torah on their own. Um, but then we'll see that other places, they actually do have kind of nice things to say about rabbis who learn Torah on their own. And then, um, so we'll, we'll be in that conversation for the beginning. Um, and, and that'll be centered around a verse from Icha, from, um, from the third from the third chapter of Icha about um, the person who sits by themselves. And um, in, in that case, it's kind of in their existential crisis slash mourning um, of the Book of Lamentations. And then, um, so, so we'll be in that conversation first, and then we'll transition into um, this is actually a, a, a Gemara that I give an entire shiur just on this Gemara. Um, it's an amazing Gemara from the end of Ketubo, and it's a series of stories about, um, about bribery. But bribery, not in the classical sense of I give you money so that you'll rule in my favor, um, but other kinds, non-monetary kinds of bribery, a term called shochad devarim, um, the bribery of things or bribery of words. Um, and I usually teach this text in the context um, of bias and just talking about what are our responsibilities. We will be tackling our own biases, but um, but today we're going to be looking at it. I mean, you can't, in my opinion, at least you can't look at the Gemara and not see that conversation. But we're going to be kind of speeding through that to the end of the Gemara, where we have a rabbi who tackles his biases by sitting in a box by himself, um, and then we'll see Elijah the prophet who we saw by himself at Horeb. And then we saw telling Rachel Baruchai and his son, you can come out now, um, but wrongly potentially, right? Cause then, cause then Elijah, if we remember from last week, right? Elijah tells them you can come out and they go out and then they burn the world with their eyeballs. And then a bot coal, right? Elijah is fired. And it's actually a bot coal who comes to tell them you have to go back in and then a bot coal that tells them that they can come out at the end. So we have Elijah kind of wrongly dismissing Arisha Mariochai from his cage, uh, from his cave. Um, and, um, and then, so here we'll see this rabbi, Rav Anan. I'm just totally giving it away for you from the start, but I think sometimes that helps that you have kind of a picture of where we're going. Um, we'll see that Rav Anan um, learns by himself in a box so that Elijah will return to learn with him. So this figure of Elijah has been playing um, and so we'll do a little bit of reflecting on the end about why Elijah um, plays such a strong role in this like particular um, in this particular question of of sing of of um, learning Torah by yourself and and of solitude and of like this particular model of quarantine. But um, let's get to the sources. Um, so those are put in the chat, and I'm going to share my screen. Um, and as I mentioned, we're going to start a little bit out of order. So we're actually going to start with this. Um, Gemara and Tani. Okay. So we have a statement in the name of Rabbi Yossi Bar Hanina, who says, My dictive Kerba Badim Veno Alu. So what does it um, what does it mean when the verse says a sword is upon the boasters and they shall become fools? Sorry, there's something happening in the chat. Um, okay, 
Have I sufficiently zoomed in on the sources? Yes, okay. Um, a sword is upon the boasters and they shall become fools. Um, what is it? So Rabbi Yossi Bar Hanina asks that, and then he he provides an, um, a like midrashic interpretation. Which is a sword upon the, the quote unquote enemies of Torah scholars, which really just means Torah scholars themselves, but like bad Torah scholars. So it's a sword upon Torah scholars who sit alone and study Torah. And not only that, but they get stupid. Um, because it says, and they shall become fools. And more than that, they're sinners. So you sit and you study alone. There's a sword hanging over your head. You become stupid and you're a sinner. Right? It says in our verse in Jeremiah, they shall become fools. No alu. Um, for we have done foolishly and we have sinned. This is after the this is after the um, the spies, the sin of the spies. Um, and we again for people who are familiar with high holidays liturgy, you're familiar with Asher Alnu Asher Right. So so what is this? So how do you know that scholars who study bad divad when they study alone? Um, they not only get stupid, but they get, but they are sinners because no alu is become fools and no alu from asher chatanu asher no alu um, that done foolishly and sin, so that and sin gets like transported back into our situation. So if I said to you, based on this Gemara and Tani, like studying Torah alone, is it okay? You would be like. Absolutely not. You will ruin the Torah and a sword hangs over you and you'll become stupid and um, and you'll be a sinner. And that is a really strong argument for Chavruza study, if there ever was one, right? And if I said to you, okay, so Rabbi um, Rishon Bar Yochai and his son, did they violate this? You'd be like, no, they learned together. And, and in fact, right in that story, they say, you know, like, um, the, you, the, the two, you and I are sufficient for the whole world, right? They see that between the two of them because they're going to study together between the two of them um, what would suffice. And um, so, so, so the quarantine looks at their quarantine and says, okay, but now I want to ask a different question, which is what if it's, what if you're really all alone? What if you're really, really all alone? And it, I think, you know, that difference between two and one has been something that people in this past year um, have felt very acutely. Um, I know that I, when, I, when, when COVID kind of began, I was working at a synagogue and it was a synagogue with a lot of young professionals um, and a lot of people who were single. And my experience was, or what I was hearing was that the difference between people who lived with a roommate and people who live totally alone, their experience of those early days before people started forming pods and started, you know, really like being comfortable hanging out with people outside, like those early days, March and April of last year, the experience of a single person with a roommate and a single person alone were like day and night, so, so, so different. The difference between one person and a person who even has someone who they maybe before this didn't know very well or something like that. Um, 
is just like an extraordinarily different, it's still very isolated. Still, if I'd said to, you know, the person with a roommate, like, are you in quarantine? They would have been like, yes, I absolutely am in quarantine. But being in quarantine with even one other person is massively different than being in quarantine by yourself. And I would say the difference between like five and two is less great than the difference between two and one. Um, and so just that, that distinction between like any human contact and no human contact is like a, a, other than yourself is just a, a massive, massive chasm and one that um, one that we'll kind of be talking about today. But and, and that would be like the first half of this um, is kind of going to be about about that, about what can it be? And, and the question that, that, that we're going to be looking at is, is this question of like, can it actually be OK to be alone? Can, is there a world in which it's OK to be alone or even purposeful to be alone? Um, and if you're gonna say like, absolutely not, it is awful, it is irredeemable, like here's your Gemara that is with you. Like this Gemara Tanit is like, yes, absolutely. It is soul crushing, it is awful. Um, but there is another voice. And I would say that there are also people who would say, I would prefer to be alone than with someone else because they're just gonna bother me. And I would actually prefer to be alone and those people also exist. Um, and, and, and so what those people might look at are some of these other choices. Um, so, so where, where we're going to center the conversation is this, um, this verse in Eicha Yeshev Vadavi Yom Kinatalav. Let him sit alone and be patient when he, when he God has laid it upon him. Um, I brought just the rest of the little stanza. That chapter three of Eicha is is, um, is alphabetical, and uh, so I brought all the yuds. So it's Yeshev Vadavi Yom Kinatalav. Yitim va'afarav hu la'yeshifa. Yitim amakelu lechi yisba becherpa. Let him put his mouth to the dust, there may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the smiter. Let him be surfeited with muck. Um, okay, so let him sit alone and be patient. Um, when we hear ve'yidom, that brings to our mind kind of two other verses maybe that, that, are, that are very beloved. So the first one um, is from just a few weeks ago on the Parsha, ve'yidom aharon, right? Aaron was silent. Um, after after the son of after his after his son's death um, and, and son's death um, deaths and uh, um, and then it also brings to mind verses we looked at last week of the cold the mama daka that you don't call the mama um, of the still silent voice that um, that Elijah heard um, at Horeb in his kind of recreation of Sinai. Okay, so we start with these verses. And where these verses appear is in our exact question in Pirkei Avot. So Pirkei Avot start has, you know, it has like its argument for Minyan. How do we know that when 10 people are together, the Shekhinah is with them? And then, and then it kind of like narrows, 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 narrows. So we, and then we get to, um, you know, and this was really on my mind just to like go back to the, the like March, April of last year. Actually, I think I posted this Mishnah on, on social media, like right before Seder last year. Um, How do you know that one who sits and studies Torah, the only one fixes a reward for him, assigns him a reward? It says, so he sits alone and meditates in stillness, yet he takes a reward unto itself. So what is this? Um, they translate vidom and not just being quiet, but actually meditate in stillness as in learn Torah, 
but the Mishnah can't even imagine like learning Torah out loud by yourself. So it's even if you're just by yourself and therefore it's kind of saying it on the inside, it seems like, um, in your stillness. And, and there's actually some questions about that, like um, what was literacy like pre kind of paper? Was there such a thing as like, were they actually always when they were reviewing or something like that, was it always out loud? Could they read without moving their lips? There's like all this like history of literacy stuff that is super interesting, but I'm just very much not an expert in, but it seems quite relevant to this conversation. Um, so maybe we can all, you know, do some research and come back to it. Um, but um, uh, but the, the way it seems like the way the way that Pirkei Avot here is reading it is that this one person is sitting by himself learning Torah and what is this what is he doing when he is yeshiv but that but you don't like what how is it interpreting the verse in Eicha it's he's sitting alone in um in silence but still learning Torah um and um and the Rambam on the Mishnah takes it in that direction and but connects it into some of these other texts that we've looked at so. So it says um, he is silent, and and that's a, that's a hidden speech, meaning he's still doing something in there. It's he is speaking, but like in his silent way, but he's still speaking. And what is that? That's the cold So it's not just demama. There's still a call behind that demama of the person who's who's learning Torah by himself. Um, but the other beautiful thing that Rambam's doing is then connecting it back in, like, what is this, like, connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that you, when you're sitting, learning by yourself in the, in the dome, kind of sitting, like, what, what element of God are you connecting to? You're connecting to the version of God that's there in that silence, that's there in the Elijah by himself, feeling so lonely, other prophets have been murdered by Jezebel. And um, and he's so and he's so alone and so angry. And then God is there in that quiet, lonely silence. And that's uh, and and there's like a Torah there and a voice of Torah there too. Um, so that's that's what Rambam is really reading into this. Um, so the Rambam's reading in to this um, this um, Mishnah and Pirkei Avot. Um, and, 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 and then he quotes Unglas, Andre Dom Aron, as Vishatik Aron, Verayatosh, who Kamisha Kiem Kohatora Kula. And the, the proof is that, um, that it's, it's, it's as if he, like, he upheld the whole Torah. Um, and the way you get to there is from ki natal alav ki ilu netinat hatara kula haita ba'avuro levat. So his reading of, uh, so he reads the um, he reads the second half of this verse when he has laid it upon him ki natal alav as like what does that mean? It means God like put the entire Torah onto him, and therefore he he takes a great reward because he is living out. This this um, and through that he gets he 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 merits the entire um, as it's as if the entire Torah was given was given for his sake. So that's so that's pretty high praise for someone who sits and learns Torah on their own. But it does seem like I do just want to hone in on this afilu, right? So it's not like oh, the best thing is to sit by yourself, but if you have to have company, then okay, God is still with you in two, okay, God is still with you in five, okay, God is still with you in 10. 
Like that's not how the Mishnah is structured. The Mishnah is structured with like 10 and then shrinks, shrinks, shrinks to even one. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want you to like get the wrong impression that like, even though Rambam has these very growing words for this person who learns Torah by himself, um, it would be like, a, I think it would be like a pretty serious, either like a misread of the Mishnah or a very creative read of the Mishnah to say that, yes, like it's the best to, to be alone and learn Torah by yourself. I don't think that's, that's, that's a very difficult read, um, but you can still like have a very fruitful learning on your own. Um, and the other thing I wanted to look at with regards to this Mishnah is the Abu Rebbe Nachan on it. So, um, so here we go. It's 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 great. Um, so the Abu Rebbe Nachan has a slightly different version of the Mishnah. It says an individual who sits and and, and engages in Torah, his reward is accrued on high. Let him sit alone in silence, for God has placed it on him. So what he in the context of this Abu Rebbe Nachan, what did God? Place on him, God placed on him the the schar, like the the reward, it seems. Um, and then they gave a parable. To what can it be compared? Person who has a young son, and he leaves his son at home, and he goes out. The father goes out to the marketplace. Ahmad, the son gets up, and he gets a scroll, and he places it on his knees, and he sits and he is studying it. Look, look, everyone, my little son, I left him, I had to go to the marketplace, what did he do all on his own? He learned, he got the Megillah, he put it on his knees, and he was sitting, and he was learning it, and then we kind of like zoom back out of the story. You learn from this that even an individual who's sitting and learning Torah, um, his um, his reward accrues on high. So this story is all sorts of things. I think it's really it's a very like sweet story. This image of like you know this child who exceeds expectations and learns what you know like learns when the father isn't expecting him to and all of that. But I think um, when you take the story from like the mashal and try and map it onto the nimshal. Um, that's when it gets like a little bit more complicated because this whole time, right, we've been trying to, the, 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 the Mishnah starts out, you know, 10 people are learning together, the Shekhinah is there with them. Well, if the father here is God, then when this kid is learning, where is God? God is in the marketplace. God isn't there. God has left and this kid is learning on his own and the father then is proud of this kid the father says like the kid accrues merit but what a, what a kind of sad what a, what a sad way to understand what's happening to this kid or what's happening when you learn Torah on your own is actually like yeah the shina is not there like god's presence is not there but you can still find merit even in a world in which god's presence is not there so i will say like i think 
you know, for like a different shiur, like back to the like, I, I gave I gave a shiur before Purim about like God's hiddenness and Astara. I think this is an amazing text for that conversation about like, what does it mean to be sitting and learning Torah even though God has left? Um, wow, like what an, what an amazing, um, what an amazing articulation of that. But if we're trying to say like, what is this experience of learning Torah, of being all alone and learning Torah and that, that's a, that's a, and you're, right, if you're learning Torah, like you're trying to be in a relationship with the divine and the divine then is not there. Um, and so there's some consolation that, that God will come back, God will, God will notice and be so proud at the end, but at the end of the day, you're the you're the person who had to get up and take initiative when you were left all alone. And and there's a certain amount of like, oh, if you're alone, the only reason why you're alone is because you were you were abandoned. Um, and not like this is not me, by the way, like parent shaming or anything like that. Like, oh, dad had to go to work, like none of that. But right, but I think there is like a feeling of that within, um, within this Mishnah of like. The kid was on his own, left without instruction, left without anything, and then exceeded expectations. But those expectations were very low. Um, so, so it does seem like, as I mentioned, kind of at first glance, it's like this very kind of like sweet story about this kid who learns Torah. But the minute you try to like apply it to the situation of the person who's learning Torah on their own, and then God <laughs> is the father, and the person who's learning Torah on their own is the son, it all of a sudden becomes, I think, quite sad and difficult um so we have so we seem to have this kind of tension we started out with the Gemara and Ta, with the Gemara and Tani saying like absolutely do not ever learn on your own then we saw the Mishnah which said um you know which seems to say like yes like they're so rewarded learning on your own and the Rambam who connects you then to this like access to God of the and the Vayidom Aaron and the whole Torah was given um, for you. That's what Kinatala means. It means that the Torah was, was given for just this person. That's like really the Rambam kind of blowing open this. Like, yes, it's amazing to learn Torah on your own, which is like not so surprising given that the Rambam was like really, you know, like you know how there's like people in the in the Gemara who like you know who their chavrusas were, like or Yochanan and Reish Lakish or whatever, right? Like if I said to you, like, who is the Rambam's chavrusa? You would be like. Right. And the Rambam, more than that, right? Like the Rambam also thought he was, um, right? Because as opposed to, let's say, the Tosfot. So the Tosfot and the Rambam were at the same time, but they didn't know about each other. And the Rambam thought he was the last Torah scholar, like, in the planet. Um, and, um, and whereas the Tosfot, like, had each other, right? The Tosfot are always in conversation with each other, and they're part of this, like, vibrant, um, discussion, I mean, whatever, to say the Tosfot is, I think, like, one unitary thing that appears on the side of the Gemara, for sure, right? That's complicated. But you do kind of often see um, um, but you do kind of, oh, you I'll get to you in a second, but you do kind of often see um, Tosfot really yes in conversation with each other, and the Rambam never, and, it, like, right, again, like, like pause and think about it for a second, but like if you said like who is the Rambam's Kavusa, the answer is like absolutely nobody. Um and that so of course the Rambam is then gonna come to say, yes, like I am Aaron, I am Elijah, the, the guy who wins Torah by himself. Like, yeah, go him. Um and but and and that's an important voice to like have within our Masura, obviously. But if you but but it's kind of a unique voice compared to where some of our more traditional texts are 
including this album with Jeremy Nelson, but we had just pointed out in the chat, and I don't know whether that was to everyone or just me. Let me just read it out. They owe it to everyone, but you know, just point it out. Of which Jeremy Nelson seems to contradict other Pierre K. quote, um, which says, right, wherever my name is mentioned, wherever my name is mentioned, I will come to you and bless you. Um, meaning that like the father has never gone to the market. Right, that's that's your the point that you're making. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely right. So there is, but I, but I do think you can kind of experience it in both ways, and that both of those experiences were even things that people have kind of in our communities have experienced in this past year. Of um, the one person who said, "Yes, I'm by myself, and it's totally fine, and God is here with me, and God has come to bless my sitting solitary Shabbos table, and that's okay," versus the person who says. Um, who experiences the Abu Dhabi Natan version um, of I'm alone here with my Haggadah or here, you know, reading the Parsha or whatever, and like God, God is God has gone somewhere else. Um, and and I, I mean, one of the things that's really amazing about the Jewish library is that we can find um, voices for both of those um, in, a, in a really authentic way. You know, that's obviously something that we really love about the Torah. Um, Great. So I want to move on. Unless if, if people have comments about any of the stuff we've done so far, that's kind of like part one of the sure. Um, so definitely pipe in now and I'll just breathe for a second and then we'll, we'll move on to our long Gemara and Ketubo that will probably jump around in a little bit. Yeah, hi. Thanks. Um, I just had one like comment just in the about Derby Natan. I just, maybe this is just like I don't know, representative of like where I am in my own life right now. But when I first read it, I didn't read the abandonment as a like, oh, as nice as it, as it is, there's like, there's like a loss or an abandonment. Like to me that the father going to the marketplace isn't about leaving. It's about like lack of structure, which is partly like I just got back from my Shanabet. So like for me learning Torah, it's a lot easier when I have a shear like this than if I'm just like sitting in my room alone. So when I read that, I was like, oh, this is about learning Torah when you don't have structure and you just do it. And like, I'm not like, I hear what you were saying, but I'm not like so convinced that it has to be like a loss necessarily, or just like, just a description of what sort of circumstance this is. Doesn't mean that like God is not there. It's that God's not, nobody's there making you learn. Doesn't mean God mm -hmm. is not there. Interesting. Wait, so stay with me for a second, Haya. When you read like the Nimshal of this Mashal, do you still think that the, the father is God. The father still represents God, right? Yeah. Yeah. But when the father goes to the market, that's not like abandonment. That's just like uh lack. Like I just don't think it's a like one-to-one translation of like if the God if if the father's leaving, that means God is leaving. Like if the father's leaving, that means lack of structure, and that can mean a lot. So, oh, right. So sorry. Okay. So I, I think I it's like you have a very like x equals y sort of understanding of it and mine's a little more like um less within the lines which i don't know i think just, i think it's just a way a different way of reading it yeah i think the way you're reading it which is a good read is i like i would read like father equals god father goes to shook god goes to shook and right. you would say father goes to shook god doesn't provide structure right yeah, yeah. or just there isn't structure yeah. Right, right, right. Like when, when the father comes back, that's definitely God. But like 
in like the setup of the mashal. I don't, I don't know how like, that's all. Yeah. Just a thought. Cool. But yeah, yeah, thank you for that. I yeah. think it's cool how like, yeah, I, I like I'm seeing my own like current mental state and my own reading of it, which is like subjectivity, whatever. <laughs> but that's the godless of the Torah. Like, I love that. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Um, Yehuda, so look before like you had something to say about this. Disgusting. No, nothing. Elizabeth, anything from you? Are you Elizabeth? I can't hear you. Give Elizabeth a second. Like oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I I just put it in the chat. Like, um, I was just sort of going along with what um, what Chaya was saying. Like, it could be that the father just um, you know, has to take care of other responsibilities, but still loves and cares, but can't be present at that particular moment like deeply engaged in you so deeply but still cares and just is attending to other things or other people or other worldly needs I, I you know but but not gone not necessarily like gone because totally. it's because I mean abandonment sounds like punishment and I guess I wouldn't want to read this as punished as abandonment because of punishment of course the the echa you know that has that reeks of punishment but you know, I'm not sure that I don't know. I don't know if the the if like about Derby not talking about sitting in that echa or like just taking it in a whole new direction to talk about Torah study. Yeah, I love that. Right, part of it. What a read that you're bringing to this, which is really really good, is like what does the shuk represent? Does the shuk just represent I'm a working parent, or does it represent something about like hefker? Does it represent something about like a free for all or like a like an abandonment and and you guys are both pushing back that i presented like a very strong reading of it which is not necessarily um the the only or the best or the most right read um and and elizabeth i think you did a really good job of kind of like pointing out that evidence in both directions um but yeah i definitely agree that 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 it, a lot turns on how you read on how you read the shook um, and right, because it could have been, oh, the father went to like Medinat Hayam, like the father went, you know, somewhere really much further away, and that would be completely within the like midrashic mashal corpus of possibilities, um, and that would be a much more kind of much greater representation of abandonment. And here, like the father goes, it's clearly local because he comes back and his son is still learning, so it's not he didn't go very far, even if he. Um, you know, even if he had to leave. So definitely, um, I definitely um, hear what you have to say. Okay, good. That was, that was, that was very Okay, let's keep going into this tomorrow. So um, I added in these Arabic numerals in the English and the Hebrew on the source sheet here for source number six, because we're not going to do all of them. Um, but those are my addition and not if you open up the Gemara at 62.105b, you will not find these Arabic numerals inside of it. Um, but it's just a long Gemara, and I thought it would help us keep track of where we are. Um, okay, so the Pasuk says actually in two different places, but it's basically identical verses. V'sholcha, um, right, both in, in Mishpatim and in Dvarim, V'sholcha lo tikach, you shall not take a bride. Inu tarich lomar, mar mamon. The pasuk doesn't even need doesn't need to tell you not to take bribes of money. Ella nami but even bribes of words or things, right? We know that divarium in the you know divarium can mean a few different things. It can mean words. It can mean just 
things. Um, series of concepts, Varim. All right, anyways, um, even, even Shulchat Dvarim is also prohibited. Um, and we know that because this is like, it's always fun when, when, the, um, when the Gemara entertains like, um, ca ca like counterfactual ideas of what the Torah could have said. So from the fact that the Torah could have said, Betzalotikach, um, and instead said Shochalotikach. So the Torah could have said, "Don't take gain," and instead it said, "Don't take bribery." Um, we know that it must be something bigger than gain. It must be like Shochad must mean something more than Betza means, or else the Torah would have said Betza. Okay, so like the whatever, the quality of that kind of argument. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes the, sometimes you see arguments like this, even in the Gemara, and the, and the Gemara just like rejects them out of hand. Like, no, like they, you know, the Torah just had to make a decision about what word to use. Um, moving right along here. But here the Gemara really goes for it. Um, and, and like you can find Shulchan Tvarim is, 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 makes its way into the Shulchan Tvarim. So, um, but, but, but the Gemara knows that this idea of Shulchan Tvarim is like a really interesting one. And therefore furnishes us with a, it asks the question, what, what is shochad devarim? What is this tribe of words? And instead of saying, here's a definition, the Gemara gives us a series of stories, which is just the absolute best. Um, and these stories are fantastic. And, and the way to read this Gemara, meaning there's so many different ways to read it, but the, each one gets like more and more like ridiculous and intense and you could read the whole thing as like comedic. Um, and so definitely I want you to like, just come into this open set and it's, it has a very different feel than like any of this. We've been doing a lot of really heavy stuff the last couple of days. And then, so I just want to like ease the transition from the like abandoned child to like the Gemara telling like mildly humorous stories um, by just, just warning you that that's where we're going. Um, I, I don't have any better way of like using that transition but hopefully no one's um, in too vulnerable place right now. Okay. So what are we understanding by a bribe of words? Here's story number one. Um, like a thing that happened to Shmuel, he was crossing a, a river on a on a board. So like you have like a little like board um, bridge thing. Um, a man comes by and he offers him a hand. Amarlei. Shmuel says to the guy, um, what's your business here? Um, and the guy says back to him, I, um, I have a lawsuit. And Shmuel responds to him, I am disqualified from acting for you in that suit. So what is Shochad Dvarim? If I said to you, like, well, what even are the words here? You might say there are no words. You could also say, no, the words are the Dina Ili, right? Shmuel said to him, what, what's your business here? And the guy says, I'm here for a lawsuit. The fact that he disclosed that what he's here for is a lawsuit um, maybe is what he what the bribe of words is. The whole thing is very, is very kind of murky, but that's definitely an interesting read. Like if the only, and then because part of it is like this question of my vidatih, it could be construed as like, why are you helping me? And then the answer is, I have a lawsuit. Of course, I'm helping you. In which case, of course, Shmuel then has to recuse himself. That's like one potential read of the story and the words. Another potential read of the story and the words is Shmuel saying is, is that that the guy actually giving Shmuel a hand is the bribe. 
and that that the actual like the bribe of words doesn't is is lavdafka is not necessarily words. It's just any kind of like small fever or nicety can constitute shulchadvarim, and that would um, and that would be shulchadvarim. So that's just two different kind of ways to read read the story, and it leaves open this like what is shulchadvarim. And I think after reading the story, you can still like pretty confidently say I don't really know. <laughs> because there's like at least two super compelling reads um, of the story. And I think, you know, if I were teaching this story in a different, in a different context, which I really, really often do, as I mentioned at the top, um, we would, we would spend really a lot of time like talking about different potential reads and what exactly is wrong with, um, with this case. But since that is not our purpose and it, we have to get to the end, um, we're just going to keep plugging away. But for another time, if you ever see me uh, giving a shoer with the word bias in the subject line, that's this, and you can uh, and you can come and hear it in that context. Um, so we have another story about a Mamar, and again, we've jumped a whole bunch of generations, right? So Shmuel's like first generation of Mora, a Mamar is I think a like a sixth or seventh generation of Mora. Like we're really we've moved far along here. Amimar um, Habayativ Kadai and Dina. So Amimar is sitting, and he's actually he's not just on his way to the courthouse like Shmuel was, but he's sitting and doing judgment. Parach Gadva Rishe, and um, a bird flies down on his hand on his head. And a man comes by and knocks the bird off his head. Merlei, um, Amimar says to him, he follows that same script that Shmuel followed. He says, what are you, you know, what are you doing here? Merlei, the guy says, I have a lawsuit. And Amimar responds back to him, oh, I'm not allowed to, uh, I have to recuse myself. I'm disqualified from being your judge. And, uh, you know, that's kind of interesting because situationally, even if you thought Shmuel didn't actually need to recuse himself, um, you might think a Mamar still does because a Mamar is literally sitting, Yatsi Bukadai and Dina, Mamar is sitting in a courtroom and someone does something nice for him. Like he's really like in the like lawsuit state of mind. Um, so you might think that a Mamar did the right thing, even if Shmuel kind of like was overly, overly um, enthusiastic about disqualifying himself. And, um, but the, the thing, the other thing to notice obviously is that they, they follow this exact same script. So is this like, oh, and, and where, where I like to take this in a certain sense is like, if you're trying to train yourself not to be biased by things, you have to learn how to constantly be questioning the way you think about things. Um, and, and just to, to kind of prove that, so let's take a look at, um, we're just gonna skip number three and go to number four. And so here's a Ishmael Barabiyusi, and he has a sharecropper. So a sharecropper is a person who lives on your land um, and farms your land and then pays you a portion of their produce. So their rent is a portion of the produce that they grow off of your property. So that's what a sharecropper is. So Ishmael Barabiyusi has a sharecropper, and his sharecropper would bring him um, a basket full of produce every Friday. So for regular reasons, but then one week the sharecropper brings it on a Thursday. So Rabbi Shmuel notices something's weird, and he says, "My you know what's different about today?" The sharecropper responds, "Dina Eli." Um, he says, oh, I have a court, I have a lawsuit, and he says, I'm on my way in, I'm on my way to town anyways, I thought once I'm already on my way, I'll bring you my basket of fruit. 
Rabbi Yishmael, Rabbi Yossi does not accept the fruit from him. And instead, he's, and in addition, he says, in addition, he says, I am not, a, I'm also disqualified from being your judge. Um, and he finds two other rabbis and they judge his case. There's a lot of literature about, is it two rabbis and him or are two rabbis actually sufficient to be a bait in here once he's recused himself or like what exactly is the situation? Anyways, see you there for all of that conversation, we're not going there, but just wanted to flag it. Uh, and as Rabbi Shmuel Rabbi is like going on his way, setting this all up, going back and forth, Omar, he says to himself, Oh, if he wants, he can make a claim like this. Oh, if he wants, he can make a claim like that. And then he notices what's going on inside of his own brain. And he says, Wow. Well, um, the despair that waits for those who take bribes, ma'ani shalona talti, I, who didn't take a bribe, ve'im natalti, and if I had taken a bribe, shalina talti, it was, it wasn't even a bribe, it was, a, 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 you know, produce that, that belonged to me, like it was rent owed to me. How much worse for people who accept bribes? So meaning what happens is, like this guy just brought his rent a day early. He literally he showed up to pay rent a day early. Rishmael goes, doesn't take it and recuses himself and still finds himself being affected by it and, and feeling, feeling affection and like siding with the sharecropper and trying to like figure out, oh, what kind of argument could he make? He could argue like this, he could argue like that. And then he realizes, oh my gosh, like, I, he was just paying me rent a day early and that got so into my head. Um, wow, I'm so glad I didn't take it. And wow, you know, and, and, and how much worse for people who really do take bribes, that's the power of bribery. It really does get into your head. So that level of kind of self-awareness from Rabbi Shmuel or Rabbi Yossi about um, how easy it is for him, for he himself to experience, to experience um, bias. Okay, we're gonna skip now to source number six. It's a long one, so I just wanna make sure we like have all the time we need. Um, okay. Okay, so Rav Anan, um, I, so now we're up to Rav Anan, he's our guy who's gonna be sitting in a box by himself. Um, so I feel like how Gavra Kanta did Gildene, did they Gildene? So a man brings Rav Anan a bale of small fish. Right, it's the same classic question. He says to him, Rav Anan says to fish guy, what is your business here? Fish guy says to him, Dina Fish guy says, I have a lawsuit. Um, Rav Anan responds, uh, and then so Rav Anan does not take the fish from him, and in addition says, and in addition says, I'm disqualified from trying your case. Fish guy says back to Rav Anan, I am not asking you to decide in my law, to, to, to be my judge for my lawsuit. But I do want you to take my fish. Because I want to, um, I want to fulfill the mitzvah of bringing the Kurim. And then he quotes a brighter, the Tanya, 
Um, so he brings a, um, a, so he brings a brighta, which quotes a verse from Malachim Bet that talks about a person who brought this like gift of a man from Baal who brings the gift of, um, of first fruits of Bikurim, of barley and corn and is, and sorry, um, Right, it's not really corn. I don't know why they translate corn here. They didn't have corn, but um, barley and and um, and like dry and and caramel, whatever dry grains in his basket, and um, and the brighter continues. Elisha Hava was Elisha. Elisha is the man of God referenced in the verse. Was Elisha entitled to eat first fruits? Right? He's not a Kohen. He's not at the Beit Hamikdash. Rather, this verse comes to teach anyone who brings a gift to a scholar, it's as if they brought um, they brought the, their sacrificial first fruits. So therefore, this guy continues. Um, Oh, sorry. Therefore, if Anan responds to Pishkai, I wasn't going to accept your 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 um your fish, but now that you've told me the reasoning, now I will agree to accept your fish. So Rav Anan has been convinced to learn Torah from Pishkai. Pishkai convinced him to um to take the gift. Okay. So then Rav Anan wants to set up this guy with a new, a new court. So he sends, so Rav Anan sends fish guy over to Rav Nachman. And he sends him with a letter. Master should judge this man, for I, Anan, am, um, am disqualified from being his judge. And so then what happens is Rav Nachman sees the, um, okay, so then I, um, um, Rav Nachman sees the letter and says, me the shalach lihachi from the fact that he sent me this letter, shramina krevehu, must mean that fish guy is a relative of Rav Anan. And then, okay, and what's going on in Rav Nachman's court at this moment? He is judging the case of that involved an orphan. And Rav Nachman says to himself, Omar, there are two positive commandments in front of me. Um, and the positive commandment of showing respect for the Torah should take precedence. Therefore, therefore, he sent out, he postponed the court case of the Atom, he postponed the court case of the orphan and brought in fish guy. And then came on the when fish guy's prosecutor or whatever, the other Baldin, the person who's against fish guy, um, um, saw how much honor Rav Nachman was showing to fish guy, he started to untie. He, um, he, he, he like held back his claim. Um, so when the other claimant saw how respectfully uh, Rav Nachman was treating fish guy, he said, you know, forget it. And so one of the questions that comes up here is what is this Istatin Tantai? Is it, oh, fish guy must be so amazing, like never mind? Or is it, 
Rav Nachman is obviously gonna rule in his favor, what's even the point? So meaning, even if Rav Nachman wasn't going to do it, um, there was, so like in that second read, there's a miscarriage of justice. And so you could say to yourself, you know, who's responsible? Seems like for sure Rav Nachman should not have pushed off the case of the Yatom, that seems clearly wrong. Should Rav Anand maybe not have sent a letter? Maybe Rav Anand should have just said, oh, okay, walk two miles that way, you'll find Rav Nachman's court, sorry. Maybe that's what, maybe Rav Anand was participated in biasing Rav Nachman. Maybe Rav Nachman should have realized, oh, in that reasoning between, well, oh, quote Torah, obvious, like I have to give respect to the Torah, so let me give it preferential treatment. Maybe you should have realized, oh, this is a courtroom and I don't give preferential treatment. Um, there's a lot of people who maybe did wrong things here. Um, it's very hard to really fully say, like, is Rav Anand the, the person who did the most wrong? You might say, yeah, he shouldn't have written the letter, or maybe he only wrote the letter because he was so taken by fish guy's Torah, or he only wrote the letter because he loved little fish. I don't know, you could say a lot of things like that, um, but it doesn't seem like Ramadan is like the most at fault here. However, Ramadan is where the story continues, because here's the, here's the truth about Ramadan is that he was so awesome that that Elijah frequently visited him. Um, and this teaching the order of Eliyahu, which is a set of Midrashim. But but once um, once Rabbanan was entangled in this whole situation, Eliyahu Hanavi left. Yativ sat and fasted and then he and he um and he, and he prayed for God's mercy, and then um, Elijah came back. And when Elijah came back, he terrified Rabbanan. And he built himself a box, and he sat before Elijah until Elijah concluded the entire thing. And that's how we know, that's how we have um, two, two sets of Midrashim of Seder Eliyahu, a big one and a small one, one from before this thing happened, one from after this thing happened. So you might say, oh, Rabbi Eliyahu, he's not actually sitting by himself, he's sitting with Elijah. So that kind of is a good question. Um, maybe he's sitting with Haruza with Elijah and Elijah, uh, and therefore like it's not actually relevant to our opening conversation because um, that was really about being totally alone. Um, so the question is really who you think Elijah is in this story. Is Elijah a person? Is Elijah an emissary of God? Is Elijah, Elijah is Elijah like fully uh, Rav Anand's like equal, Chavrusa? Clearly not equal, clearly at least, at the very least, you must admit that Elijah is at least the teacher in this situation. Um, if, if Elijah really counts as like any kind of like equal co-human at all, um, which, which I, I think, I think the only human that's happening in this, in this Chavrusa pair is Rav Anand, in which case Rav Anand is sitting by himself and having um, having like an encounter with the divinity. Um, that's how I how I read it, but I understand that you might think, no, like Elijah here is playing like a, a person role, in which case um, that person, uh, in which case Ravana really is not by himself. 
Um, but where I wanted to go with this is that actually, like in this story, Elijah is uh, is the model and the king of by yourself and of finding that called Mamadaka, and that this is in fact then an argument for by yourself because um, when he when the Rav Anan was engaging with other people, he wasn't qualified to um, to have his chavrusa with Elijah because even just like listening to someone else's Torah and then like trying to do right by them, Rav Anan got all entangled and ended up causing an injustice. And if you want to be at the level in which of, of like scrupulous, zealotry, kano, kaneti, laokim, right? We saw last time, like I've been just like this primary zealot for God. Um, then yeah, like then you have to sit in a box um, and cut out the world. And that's how you achieve the ability, that's how you gain the right or the status to learn Torah with Elijah. Now the question for that is, well, is that something you want? So from the perspective of like, I could be in a box or I could not be in a box, if you're a person who people want to be coming to to bring their first fruits and to share their Torah and to teach and to whatever, like you might say to yourself, it's actually not worth it. Meaning like, yes, you're going to do your best and sometimes you're going to cause, um, you're going to cause some miscarriages of justice and that's just what being a human is about, but Ultimately, like worse miscarriages of justice are going to happen if you sit in a box and don't do any judge justice and don't judge people at all than would happen if you're out there and, and you're, if you're out there in the world and sometimes there's consequences. So like meaning you might, so like when I normally teach this, sure, that's where we go. Like bias, like guarding yourself from all bias would involve you sitting in a box and not doing, not, not. No, actually helping and engaging with the world. And maybe it's even like meant to be hilarious, you know, like, oh, like you do your best and like all these crazy things happen anyway. And not to say completely give up on being biased, but to say that the best way to not be biased is to be constantly just questioning yourself and questioning the people around you and just making sure that you're not actually getting and, and self-awareness is then the practice of protecting yourself from bias and not a box. Um, however, in our shiur today, we're curious about the box. So, because the question is not, should I build a box? But if I'm in a box, what is my potential? And what is the potential of that box? And I think then in that context, this is very interesting. Because what is the potential of the box? The potential of the box is actually a level of purity that you can't achieve when you are interacting with people and taking their, you know, taking their fish from them and learning their Torah from them and potentially causing damage to them. Well, if you're not around people, you can't cause that damage. So we actually have this ability to achieve like zealot level damage. And the Eliyahu loves the zealots, right? Eliyahu loves the Rishun Baruchai. He himself, he, he describes himself as a zealot. And here he turns Ramadan into a zealot. And that, um, and that moment of, of sitting in a box enable you to achieve that level of purity that our tradition is not 100% behind. Meaning I think there's a reason why the, the Nazir has to like signal himself out. Like, yeah, I'm going above and beyond, but I'm also gonna look like a wild mountain man. And I'm gonna, um, and, and I can't just pretend like, oh, I'm normal. Like I'm not normal, I'm a Nazir. Um, I think that that's really how our tradition approaches um, a lot of this like zealotry in general. Um, but like that, what, what, what we're seeing here is that this, this, this model of quarantine opens up an opportunity for purity. Um, and we're going to see next week, we're going to see 
um, Rabbi Nachman, and also my fair here, I don't know about this, um, and I'll take a look at the chat because I know there's been some stuff happening in there, um, but we'll see, um, we'll see, um, we'll see Rabbi Nachman of Breslev, like really digging into that, that also that potential for, for purity that comes, that comes with, um, that comes with solitude. Um, okay, so I'm just gonna quickly read some of the stuff that was happening in the chat. One second ago, hi, it looks like you shared some Dora. I've heard about studies proving that doctors tend to prescribe medications more often if they ever went to a conference sponsored by that drug company, even if there were no presentations about the drug, and even if they know it creates bias and are vigilant about it. Yeah, bias is really insidious. It's really intense how that works. Yeah, wow, that's a, an amazing study. I would love to read that. Um, and Yehuda says, like when Eliyahu stayed by himself when he thought Benesha was faulty in his time, right? So he was trying to, he was trying to say, like, if I'm going to be at my level of purity, I have to be far away from everyone else. And that being by yourself then, then can provide that level of purity, but um, that level of purity, and, and, and right, and that, and it's saying, like, that language of purity, it really ties back into the Kohim Gadol separating from his wife, and, and all, and separating from his house, and all of that, that, that we saw Moshe separating from, um, you know, Moshe getting purified, what was it, like, Mikadesh Anan that we saw last time, like, there's a lot of, so this is, like, intellectual purity, and that was maybe, like, physical purity, um, and, um, but that's something that can be, can maybe only be achieved in this level of solitude. Um, so that's um, just our, our third model for tonight. Next week we'll learn, we will leave the Gemara behind, which I'm always willing to do, but you know, sometimes it's for the best. <laughs> and, we'll, um, and we'll get some breast love and it'll Great, thank you so much I, uh, for this wonderful class. I also wanted to make sure, and folks should feel free to stick around and ask questions, but I wanted to make sure that folks also know about a few upcoming opportunities we have uh, in addition to our last class for this series coming up next week. Rabbi Sarna is also going to be teaching Gertrisha this coming Sunday, April 25th at 9.30 a.m. as part of International Women's Talmud Day, uh, the theme of which this year is Masechet Yoma. So Rabbi Sarna is going to be teaching a 45-minute shir, and later in the day we will also have a gathering for alumni of the uh, Dr. Beth Samuels Drisha Summer High School program. So if you are interested in learning with us or if you're an alum of the program and want to connect with some other alumni from that program, please feel free to get information for that on our website. We also have two new classes starting next week, uh, starting on Monday the 26th at 8 p.m. We have What Stops the Plague with Miss Miriam Gedweiser and starting on uh, Wednesday the 28th at 1 p.m. we have Divrei Dever Responsa in Plague Time with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Zukier. So you can get information about uh, our Sunday International Women's Talmud Day uh, shear as well as those two classes that are starting next week at, on our website at drish.org classes. Uh, we hope you'll take a look and check those out. And of course, we hope to see you back here next week for our final session. Thanks again, Ravneet Sarna. And if anyone has any questions or wants to chat, please feel free to chime in. And if not, have a great evening and a great Shabbos. And we'll see you all next week.